The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 14. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have become together corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Okay, before I read you our sermon verses today, I want to uh, announce something I, I forgot to announce in our announcements at the beginning. I'll say it one more time. I said it, uh, I think, at the Bible study last week, is that um, Judy, she's not here today, but she's got a friend that uh, is facing being kicked out of her apartment. It's somebody that Judy cares for greatly, and this lady cannot afford a first month and a last month to move into another one. And uh, she needs some help with that. And if anybody is able to, and I'm talking to people online as well, if anybody is able to help with that, they can contact me and I can give them Judy's information. But uh, I don't know the exact details of when this is. She told me, and I'm not remembering right now, but it's something I promised I would announce. So just so you're aware of that. And our sermon verses today are Leviticus 23, verses 33 through 44. It's 12 verses. It's entitled... The Feasts of the Lord, Tabernacles, starting in verse 33. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day. Besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides all your freewill offerings, which you give to the Lord. Verse 39, also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. 
You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Verse 44 finishes, so Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. So we have, before I get into the actual sermon text, uh, take you to the book of Hebrews and read you a few verses about the law of Moses, because I'm doing this because, and I'll say this again in just a few minutes during the sermon, people claim that the fall feasts of the Lord are not yet fulfilled. They have a future fulfillment. Untrue. I'm going to read you some verses. We'll talk about it, and then we'll get into the sermon. From Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 12, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. The priesthood was the Aaronic priesthood. It changed to the priesthood of Jesus Christ. There is an old covenant. There is a new. There is a change of the law. And in verse 18, he explains what that means. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment, meaning the law of Moses. It is annulled because of its weakness and unprofitableness. If it had any profit at all, it would still be in existence today, but it does not. It was anticipating the greater work and the greater ministry of Jesus Christ and his priesthood. So that's where we stand with that. Going on to chapter 8 and verse 13. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. The first covenant is obsolete. It is no longer in existence in any way, shape, or form. It is done. It is annulled. It is obsolete. Then it goes on and it says in chapter 10 and verse 9, he takes away the first, meaning the law of Moses. He's taken it away that he may establish the second. The second cannot come into its place unless the first is taken away. So it is annulled. It is obsolete. It is taken away. Are the feasts found in Leviticus chapter 23 a part of the law of Moses? Yes, and therefore they are annulled, they are obsolete, they are taken away. They are, as we will see in a moment with our text verse, only shadows of what is coming in Christ. Uh, One more verse I want to read you from the hand of Paul, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. He says, having wiped out, erased, wiped out, having wiped out the handwritings of the requirements, meaning the law of Moses, that was against us which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I'll tell you again, the symbolism, Christ was nailed to the cross. He is the fulfillment of the law of Moses. He died. The law of Moses died. It is no longer in existence. Christ came out of the grave, establishing a new covenant in his blood. The law of Moses is done. We do not reinsert the law of Moses. Our brave brother Jim here has been emailing or posting on Facebook with some knucklehead that says that we have to do exactly what we're talking about. You, you can't eat certain foods. You have to do this and you have to do that. And he is bravely taking this person on with about three other people. And this guy cannot see the truth of the Bible. He cannot see it. It is astonishing. He won't. He refuses to. And this is what I say. When somebody has a presupposition... They will not change their mind, even when they are shown to be wrong. That's why when you come to a sermon, to type a sermon, you set aside your presuppositions, or you'd be listening to something that matched every other tabernacle sermon that you've heard, if you've heard any, and you're not going to hear that today. The most common thing for me, personally, on Sunday night, 
and then again as I rise on Monday morning, is to wonder if I am going to be able to complete a sermon that is worthy of the day that I must put into it, of the ears that must eventually hear it, and of the God whose word I am trying to explain to others. I'm always unsure if what I hope for will come about, and it is almost scary for me to open up the Bible, the ten or so references that I start with each week, and then put my hands on the keyboard and start to type. I so desperately want for there to be something interesting, something edifying, and yes, new to present. It is no joy at all to me to repeat something that someone else may have presented. And it is always a delight when I type to come across something or some things that I'm pretty sure have never been presented the same way before, at least not that I know of. The Feast of Tabernacles is one of the fall feasts of the Lord. As I've said before, lots of people want to claim that there is a future fulfillment in these fall feasts for the nation of Israel. This is incorrect in as far as the feasts are fulfilled completely and in their entirety in Christ Jesus. The only future fulfillment is any time that someone realizes that it is he who the Bible <coughs> proclaims and they receive him, meaning Christ Jesus, for who he is. There are things that lie ahead for us that also may be a part of these feasts, but they are only so much so as they are guaranteed because of what he has done already in the fulfillment of them. We are waiting to be glorified, but according to Paul in God's mind, that is already done because of Jesus' work. We will just catch up to what is already accomplished, such is the case with these fall feasts. Understanding this, I came at today's verses expecting one thing, and yet I realized they mean something entirely different than what I had expected. That is why we are always to put aside our presuppositions and to evaluate Scripture as it is presented when we look at it. Otherwise, everything presented here would have been a repeat of what has already been said. Thank goodness that the sheet was blank in my head when I got going for this sermon. Our text verse is the same text verse that I have given you for all of the feasts of the Lord. It's Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink. Food or drink is the dietary laws of Israel. Paul says, let no one judge you in food or drink. Or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. The festival are the feasts of the Lord. Let no one judge you according to these things. The new moons are observances which Israel followed every single month at the time of the new moon, they would have an observance. Paul says, let no one judge you in such things. And then he adds in Sabbaths, speaking of the Sabbaths of the Lord, the weekly Sabbath and a few other Sabbaths which are proclaimed in the feasts of the Lord. Paul says, let no one judge you in such things. They are done. They are annulled. They are set aside. They are obsolete. He says, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. What was shadow is now substance. What a surprising word we have. While going through these verses and studying them word by word, marvelous patterns of what is said here kept coming up from Paul's hand in the New Testament. I doubt if it was intentional, but his training as a Pharisee meant that he was fully versed in the Old Testament. As he wrote, he probably just put down in ink what was already stored up in that vast Pharisee mind of his. At the same time, the Holy Spirit was influencing him to draw out those wonderful things and to bring them out into an epistle to this group of people and another <laughs> epistle to that group of people. 
eventually everything that needed to be said in order to reveal Christ Jesus had come out. And there it sits, waiting for people to sit down and study and make the necessary connections. What a marvel. What a gift we have in the pages of the Bible. It is the mind of God revealed in letters and words through the hand of chosen men. It's a hard thing to grasp, but things that pop up from the most obscure of words suddenly form patterns and pictures which simply cannot be random. We'll see some of those in today's verses. Great stuff lies ahead, and it's all to be found in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have just a couple thoughts for you today. The first is tabernacles. It's verses 33 through 44. Verse 33, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, the words initiate a new sequence of thought, and thus what lies ahead is separate from what has been thus far presented. In other words, as a feast will next be named, we know that it is one which is separate from the others. It is not co-joined to another, such as was the case with first fruit and weeks. Verse 34, speak to the children of Israel, saying, the words are to be conveyed to all of the people. This final feast of the Lord is to be observed by all to the Lord, and so Moses is directed to speak to the people concerning it. The Lord, as their sovereign, is now mandating this final annual feast be on, verse 34 continues, the 15th day of this seventh month. This is the third designated feast in the seventh month of the year. Again, this is based on the redemption calendar. Thus, this is the same as the first month of the year of the creation calendar. But because the feasts signify the redemptive acts of the Lord, the calendar used is that which begins in the springtime, not in the fall. The commencement date is set as the 15th of the month of Ethanim, later known in the Bible as the month of Tishri. This, like unleavened bread, commences at the time of the full moon, and it lasts an entire week. Verse 34 continues, shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. Here the word chag, or feast, is used for only the second time in the chapter. The first was in verse 6 when naming the feast of unleavened bread. Now this particular word is used again for the second seven-day feast, tabernacles. The word chag comes from chagag, which in turn indicates to move in a circle or specifically to march in a sacred procession. From there you have the implication of being giddy, to celebrate, to dance, and to feast. It is to be a time of worship, celebration, and sacrifice. It is a pilgrim feast. Later in scripture, the Feast of Weeks will also be noted as a part of a Chag, or pilgrim feast as well. The term here is Chag HaSukot, or Feast the Tabernacles. The word Sukkah, or Tabernacle, signifies a shelter. It is variously translated as a tent, a tabernacle, a cottage, a lair, a booth, and so on. It comes from the word suk, which carries much of the same meaning. Twice in the Psalms, the word is used to speak of the tabernacle of the Lord. And finally, suk comes from the word sakak, which signifies to weave together. That word hints us to what this pilgrim feast is pointing to. It is used in Psalm 139 when speaking of the weaving together of the human form. Pay attention to this because this will give you a clue as to what is being pictured in this feast. For you form me in my inward parts, you wove me, that word sakak, in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. 
As a point of reference for understanding the fulfillment of this feast, the Greek Old Testament uses the word skenon for tabernacles. It means a tent or a tabernacle as well. This feast is also detailed and reviewed in Numbers 29 and in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy 31 adds in a specific requirement to this feast, which I think is well worth citing. Let me read this to you. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men, women, and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear, and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God, and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess." It is very, very, very hard for me to imagine that the people were read the law only once every seven years. I read it every morning and I read it every night and throughout the day if I get time, and it is not enough for me. If one were to ever consider a famine in the land, that would be it to me, hearing the law read just once every seven years. Nehemiah 8 verse 18 notes that this requirement was accomplished by the people after their return from exile to Babylon. Here's what it says. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Not having read the law during this feast, if the feast was held at all, was certainly the standard. And it is for a lack of knowledge of the law that the people suffered the shame and of punishment and exile. This is certain to be true because in 2 Kings chapter 22, the book of the law, meaning the books of Moses, was found in the house of the Lord by the high priest Hilkiah. If something is found, it means that it was lost. That's exactly right. It had been completely forgotten and thus its precepts were wholly unknown to King priest and commoner alike. Verse 35, on the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. Mikra Kodesh, convocation holy. Like the other holy convocations, it signifies a day on which no regular servile work was to be done. Meals could be prepared and so it is not a Sabbath. Verse 36, for seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. The required offerings are listed in Numbers 29, verses 13 through 39. Verse 36 continues, On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there were seven days. The first and the seventh were holy convocations. In this feast, there are seven days, the first being a holy convocation, and then is added an eighth day, which is also in Mikra Kodesh, or holy convocation. However, because the Passover is tied to unleavened bread, they are both actually eight days in duration. Verse 36 continues, it is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it. Here a new word is brought into scripture, atzaret, or sacred assembly. The word comes from atsar, which signifies to shut or restrain or something like that. Some scholars say that this eighth day does not specifically belong to the feast, but it is rather a solemn close of the whole circle of yearly feasts, and so it is appended to this feast. 
This is not wholly correct. It is recorded as an ending portion of the feast, which is found in Nehemiah 8, verse 18, in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 9, and John in the New Testament says the following about this eighth day of this feast. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It both belongs as an addendum to the feast, and it also closes out the festal year of Israel. From there, the people would have to wait for the Passover until this set cycle would begin again. Later, however, the Feast of Purim would be added at the time of the exile, and that is recorded in the book of Esther. This would occur in the 12th month. And then, after that, the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, was instituted for the ninth month of the year. That occurred during the intertestamental period, but it is recorded in John chapter 10, verse 37. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. This is a summary of the entire chapter. The feasts are all considered Mikra'e Kodesh, or convocations holy, as was first stated in verses 2 through 4. These feasts then include the Sabbath, the Passover and unleavened bread, the Feast of Firstfruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Acclamation, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 37 continues, To offer an offering made by fire, a burn offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day. Exodus 29 details the daily offerings to be made. Every day of the year, along with those, the feasts had their own offerings added on to the daily offerings. These are recorded in Numbers 28 and 29. The sacrifice mentioned along with the burnt and grain offerings in this verse would be the sin offerings noted there in those chapters, but which are simply called here a sacrifice. The sin offering being the principal sacrifice necessary to atone for the sins of the people. Verse 38, besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. The term beside the Sabbaths of the Lord is a metonym, which speaks of the sacrifices of the Sabbaths. In other words, the required offerings of the feasts did not set aside those required sacrifices. They were to be made in addition to them. The same is true with the people's gifts and vow and free will offerings as well. Anything which is prescribed or promised for the Lord was not to be set aside just because the feasts had their own offerings. Verse 39, also, like verse 27, the verse begins with the Hebrew word ach, translated here as also. It is often used as a restrictive or limiting word, translated as only. Only Yom Kippur and Tabernacles contains this word ach. Thus, like it, this is a peculiar feast. As it is a limiting word, one must contemplate what is being set apart. As this is an addendum to the feast which has already been described, it will be that which sets it apart as unique. It would be that which is then recorded in verse 40. A particular rite is directed for the people which is being given for them to remember the past, but it is also for them to look ahead to the future. Verse 39 continues, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land... 
The words here look to the other name of this particular pilgrim feast, Ha'asif, for the ingathering. That name was designated in Exodus 23, verse 16, and it is repeated in Exodus 34, verse 22. It is obvious that the feast is intended to be celebrated in the land of Israel, not during the time of the wilderness wanderings. The people were supposed to go straight into Canaan and take possession. However, their disobedience kept them out of that inheritance for 40 full years. During this time, the feast could not be kept as intended. Verse 39 continues, You shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. Tachogu et hag Yehovah shivat yamim. Feasting a feast of Jehovah seven days. The idea here then is one of great, great celebration. Verse 39 continues, On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. Both the first and eighth day were previously called holy convocations, and it was said of them that no regular work could be done on them. But the preparation of food is not forbidden. Thus, these are not Sabbaths. The word translated here is Shabbaton. It's used only 11 times in the Bible. All are in Exodus and Leviticus, and all but three are conjoined with the word Shabbat or Sabbath. That then indicates a Sabbath of complete rest. Because this is not conjoined with the word Sabbath in this verse, it is not a Sabbath per se. It is rather simply a rest. Make a note in your Bible about that. No Sabbath here. The reason for using this word Shabbaton here is because the seventh month of the year, like the seventh day of the week and the seventh year of the sabbatical year cycle, is considered a month of resting. In other words, the entire month is consecrated as a special month to the people. Everything about the seventh month has an elevated sense to it. However, unless this day fell on an actual Sabbath day, it was simply a day of rest and not a Sabbath. Verse 40. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees. The word ach, or only, of verse 39 is now defined with the instructions of these words. At the feast's commencement, the people were to take, as it says, the fruit of beautiful trees. The word peri, or fruit, is used, but it seems that the term is defined next and in Nehemiah chapter 8. Rather than speaking specifically of the fruit, the idea is the product of the beautiful trees, and thus its branches, and even branches which may still have fruit on them. The word used to describe the trees here is hadar. It is introduced into the Bible, and it gives the idea of beauty, majesty, glory, splendor, and so on. Thus, these would be ornamental. Verse 40 continues, branches of palm trees. The word branches here is literally kaf, or hands. It is what the appearance of tamarim, or palms, looks like. The palm is a symbol of righteousness because it stands upright, and on top are hands of righteousness. Okay, verse 40 continues, the boughs of leafy trees. The word anaf, or branch, is introduced here. It will be seen just seven times in the Bible. It comes from a root meaning to cover just as a branch would cover the limbs behind them or beneath them. The word abot or leafy is also new, and it will be seen just four times. It comes from a root meaning to weave or to wrap up, and so you get the idea of a branch filled with intertwining leaves. Verse 40 continues, and willows of the brook. The arav or willow is also new. 
Now, we've had how many new words in just a couple of verses? The Lord is trying to tell us something, and he's using unique words never introduced into the world until this time. Now, that doesn't mean the people didn't know these words in the Hebrew, but this is the first recorded instance of these words in human history in the pages of the Bible. He's trying to alert us that he wants us to focus on these words. It comes from the word arav, which means pledge or surety. That is connected to the word aravon, or pledge, which is found three times in Genesis 38 and three times in the New Testament. Though Hebrew, it is transliterated directly into the Greek from the Hebrew there in the New Testament. The word brook is nahal. That comes from the verb nahal, which indicates to take possession or inherit. And that in turn comes from nahala, or inheritance. These particular branches are specified here and not others. But in Nehemiah 8 verse 15, others are mentioned by name for this exact same feast. But the Lord now is having us focus only on these specific branches. Why would he do that? Verse 40 continues, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. The feast is a seven-day feast of rejoicing, as it says, Lifne Yehovah Elohechem, or in the face of Yehovah your God. Verse 41, you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. Vechagotem otochag leYehovah shivat yamim bashana, and feasting it a feast to Yehovah seven days in the year. The year is that which contains the cycle of redemption. Seven is the number of spiritual perfection. Verse 41 continues, It shall be a statute forever in your generations. The words, Chukat olam ledorotechem, or statute forever in your generations, indicate to the vanishing point. Israel was to observe this feast forever until it reached its fulfillment in Christ. What was mere shadow, according to Colossians Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, which I've read you every single week during these Feasts of the Lord sermons, what was mere shadow is now substance. Everybody got that. This was a shadow. They were looking forward to something which is fulfilled in Christ. The substance is the reality. Verse 41 continues, you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. The 15th day of the seventh month is exactly exactly six months after the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Thus, there is this marvelous pattern of the two feasts beginning on the day of the full moon and lasting seven days, exactly one half year apart from one another. Verse 42, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. The dwelling in booths was for only seven days. The eighth day was the conclusion of the feast and the booths were no longer used. In other words, the rejoicing in the temporary booths was in anticipation of the day when they would be removed from them into their permanent dwellings. Is anyone seeing what is being described yet? I will say this much. If you remember the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it is absolutely parallel to what is going on here. If you don't remember that, go back and watch that sermon and watch this one again with it tonight. The number eight in the Bible always signifies new beginnings. It is this day which was anticipated by the people awaiting their new beginning. Verse 42 continues, All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. The term Ezrach, or native, comes from the word Zarach, or rise, as when the sun rises. 
The meaning is that one who rises out of Israel, Ezrach, a person rising out of Israel, all who rose up from Israel were to dwell in Booths. The term, however, this is very important to remember, is used in Exodus 12, verse 48, when speaking of a stranger, meaning a Gentile dwelling among Israel who participated in circumcision and then kept the Passover, both of which point to the work of Christ. Somebody that meets those requirements is Ezrach. They rise out of Israel. Verse 43, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Every single translation of every person in this room right now says exactly what I just read you. Very close to it. Every one of you. And they are certainly incorrect. It never says anywhere that they dwelt in Sukkot or tabernacles when they were brought out of the land of Egypt. It doesn't say that, okay? Instead, it says in Exodus 12, verse 37, that when the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, and here's what it says, then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses. Does anybody remember where the first stop was? Sukkot. That's exactly right. This is what they were remembering. It wasn't because they dwelt in temporary booths after leaving Egypt. It was because they had left Egypt. Their first stop was Sukkot. They were to make booths or Sukkot because they had left Egypt to stay in a place called booths. The verse should read that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in Sukkot when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Sukkot, the name of the location, means tabernacles. That day corresponded to the first day of unleavened bread, and they passed through the Red Sea on the seventh day of unleavened bread. Corresponding to that is this feast, looking back on the great redemption and deliverance. Does anybody remember the Passover signifies a redemption from sin? The first day of unleavened bread and the last day of unleavened bread stood representative for the entire feast of unleavened bread because they were both holy convocations. The day that they went out, they stayed in Sukkot, in tabernacles, and then they went to the seventh day, which was the day they passed through the Red Sea, a picture of our death going into new beginnings. Does everybody remember that now? Okay, that is exactly what's being pictured here, but we're being given different instructions for the same thing. Verse 43, I am the Lord your God. Ani Yehovah Elohechem, I am Yehovah your God. The Lord proclaims his name and position. In essence, what we are being told with these words is, I am the self-existing creator. When you see these things fulfilled by someone in the future, you will know that it is me. I am Jehovah your God, come to dwell among you. Verse 44 finishes our verses today with, So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. The word here is moed. And it should be translated as appointed times rather than feasts. I said that in our first feast sermon. I'm reminding you of that now. They use two different words and they translate them both as feasts and you lose the meaning of what's going on. It's, it's a shame. It should say in one, the feast of the Lord, here, Moed, the appointed times of the Lord. Certain things were to occur at appointed times because they would occur at set times each year, and they would again occur at set times in the future when he came. Does everybody appreciate the fact that they went to Sukkot, and that's what he's talking about? They had left Egypt. 
Egypt is a picture of bondage to sin, right? Everybody remember that. We are in sin. We are under the power of the devil. We are redeemed out of that. And the first place they went was to Sukkot, to tabernacles. What does that mean? Stay tuned. Part two is coming. We are here in your presence dwelling in temporary tabernacles, and we are rejoicing in all that you have done for us. A fire is inside to warm us as each ember burns and crackles. We are safely secure as we await the Lord Jesus. Oh, to dwell in our eternal home, for this we long. May that day be soon, but we will rejoice until then. Hear our praises, hear our joyous song coming forth from the lips of your redeemed among men. Thank you for our great hope and the peace it does provide. Thank you for the surety we have in Christ Jesus. In his hope, we now patiently abide, anticipating all that he has prepared for us. If you paid attention to that poem there, you know what's coming. Our second thought today is fulfilled in Christ. This feast, like that of unleavened bread, points to Christ's work as it is displayed in us. Remember the Feast of Unleavened Bread was our process of sanctification during this life. Paul said that we are to keep the feast not with the leavened bread of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Remember that? It pictured our lives in Christ because of what Christ had done. Unleavened bread followed the Passover. It signified our life in Christ, the process of sanctification. That went from the day after the Passover, and it lasted seven days until the passing through of the Red Sea. It pictured our redemption in Christ, Passover, his sacrificial death, and then our life of sanctification until we pass through death and the rapture, unleavened bread, and we are then brought into the Lord's presence. This feast is parallel to that. It follows two other feasts in the seventh month. The first was the day of acclamation, picturing Christ's birth, where he came to tabernacle or dwell among us, becoming our sacrifice for sin. With our atonement behind us, we have a new life to live, pictured by Sukkot or tabernacles. The first thing to understand is that this feast is fulfilled for us in the work of Christ. This is made explicit in John 1, verse 14. I'm going to use Young's literal translation of the Bible for us so that you get the connection. And the word became flesh and did tabernacle among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of an only begotten of a father, full of grace and truth. There John uses the word skenao, or dwelling in a tent. It is from the same word as that of the Greek translation of the Old Testament for booths or tabernacles. I said that earlier here in Leviticus 23. In other words, Christ came, put on a tent of flesh and became a man. What allows us to participate in the Feast of Tabernacles is that Christ first did so. The seven days of unleavened bread pictured us as unleavened or sinless before the Father, living out lives purged of sin. The seven days of tabernacles pictures us living in temporary booths or tabernacles before the Father, awaiting our permanent dwelling. It is the same time frame in both feasts, our life after receiving Christ Jesus. The two feasts simply portray two different aspects of this. Both occur on the 15th day of the month, the time of the full moon. Our true life begins as the brightest moment in our life, represented by the brightly lit night which starts the new day. As the moon begins to wane, so our life in Christ as mortals do as well. But we are not to despair as our darkness approaches. 
The first day is a holy convocation, as is the eighth day. The two holy convocations bracket the feast. They stand as representative of the entire period of the feast. Like unleavened bread, which is tied to the Passover, the feasts both last seven days, but with an additional day added, thus making eight. The last day for both are a new beginning. The significance of the Sukkah, or tabernacle, is tied into our position in Christ. He came and tabernacled among us. Now for those who are in him, we are positionally new beings in Christ. Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with these words. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Paul uses this same terminology four more times to show us that if we are in Christ, we will be like Christ and thus are to live as Christ lived. This is our time of dwelling in Sukkot, redeemed from spiritual Egypt, the Passover, sins atoned for, day of atonement, and awaiting our new beginning. The mentioning of the required offerings and sacrifices for each day of the feasts, along with the other sacrifices and offerings and so on, is to show us that the work of Christ was accomplished for us, but it continues to be effectual for us throughout our life in Christ. There is no lack in our spiritual needs, and our salvation is ongoing, and it is eternal. After that, it again returned to the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Ingathering. As it says, when you have gathered in the fruit of your land. This doesn't necessarily mean that all of the harvest is gathered in, and such was not the case in Israel at this time of year. But it is reflective of the gathering in of the harvest of the church from beginning to end. Keep thinking of the church age leading to the rapture. Keep thinking of it. In Deuteronomy 16.15, it specifically says that they were to observe this feast because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in the work of your hands so that you shall surely rejoice. It was a time of rejoicing because of the blessing of an abundant harvest. Again, keep thinking of the church age. The Jews used the term in gathering to say that this here is representative of the regathering of Israel to the land today. That is wholly incorrect. It has nothing, zip, zero, nada to do with that. This is a feast of the Lord. It is not a feast of Israel. It is a spiritual harvest, not a physical regathering of Israel. It is the abundance of life in Christ terminating in our glorification that is being anticipated here. Next, in verse 39, it said, On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. As the first and final days stand as representative of the entire feast, this then teaches us that our rest is in Christ and his work. The entire time of our life in Christ, we are free from working for salvation because we have been saved. After noting that came the directive that on the first day, the people were to take the fruit of beautiful trees. They were to select specific named trees, which would reflect the Hadar or majesty of what the Lord would do in and for us. The word peri or fruit is used to signify the product of these beautiful trees in our lives. Paul explains this several times, but Philippians chapter one gives us a beautiful example of it. Here's what he says. 
And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Next, we're named the Kaput Hemarim, or Palms of Hands. This reflects a state granted to us by the hand of God, Christ's righteousness, all because of our faith in Christ. That is seen many times in the New Testament, but Romans chapter 4 speaks of it in exacting detail. We are granted Christ's righteousness. It is imputed to us. After this were the anaf etz abot, or boughs of leafy trees, the leaves being so abundant that they actually form a cover. The New Testament parallel is obvious. Paul explains it in Romans chapter 4. He says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. That's what these are picturing, that particular branch there. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And then next were noted Arve Nahal, or willows of the brook. As I said, Arav, or willow, comes from the word Arav, which means pledge or surety. That is connected to the word Aravon, or pledge, which is found transliterated three times in the New Testament. It means a pledge or guarantee. All three times in the New Testament, it speaks of the pledge of the Holy Spirit given to believers who put their faith in Christ. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and watch the Genesis 38 sermon. It's one of my very favorite in the entire Bible, and it is speaking of the aravon, or the pledge or guarantee which is given to us, which is the Holy Spirit. In one of the three times that he mentions this word, Paul directly ties our being in a tent a tabernacle with the aravon, or guarantee. In fact, the words of Paul here show us the complete fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, all because of Christ's work. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 4 and 5, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed we have been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the spirit as a aravon, a guarantee. You talk about eternal salvation, here it is, right here in the Old Testament pictures of the coming work of Christ. The second word used, nahal, signifies an inheritance. That is used in conjunction with the word aravon as well in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Here's what it says. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the aravon, the guarantee of our inheritance, that word nahal, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Every branch that was selected, those new words that were introduced into the Bible by the Lord are picturing our life in Christ, our inheritance, our guarantee, our covering, our imputed righteousness, all of it is pictured in this. 
it is more than amazing, but rather of divine perfection that the same Old Testament words that are joined together here in Leviticus are joined together in the New Testament counterparts in 2 Corinthians and Ephesians. The trees specifically named here were chosen because of what the root words they come from signify. In turn, what they signify is then used in the New Testament to then point us specifically to the work of Jesus Christ. This is all the more evident because other trees could be used. I said this earlier, but they go unnamed. In Nehemiah, we read this, and they found written in the law. Now, he's citing the law, right? They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, go out to the mountain and bring olive. Did it say anything about olive in what we looked at today? No. Olive branches, branches of oil trees. Doesn't say anything about them. Myrtle trees it does. Myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths. As it is written, the Lord focused on specific branches only here so that we would see the connection to the work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. In the law, explaining the feasts, the trees are named for a reason. Unlocking the reason leads us directly to the fulfillment in Christ Jesus. Next, in verse 40, the people are directed to rejoice. They're not asked to do so. It's an imperative. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And they are to do it for seven days. Keep thinking of our life in Christ. We're being ordered here from an Old Testament picture not to be moaners. Don't be whiners. Don't be downtrodden or downcast. Rejoice, right? That's what we're being told to do. That is literally fulfilled in the words of Paul in Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice always in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. There the words are present, imperative, active in the Greek. You shall rejoice. You shall do it now. And you shall continue to rejoice. We are to rejoice in the Lord, meaning Jesus, the fulfiller of the feast. Paul repeats this sentiment in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, which is the shortest verse in the entire Bible. Pantote charete, rejoice always. Let us ever do so. The word then tells us that we are to be feasting a feast to Jehovah for seven days in the year. In other words, in the prophetic plan of redemption, there is a moment in time when we exist. We're all not here a hundred years ago and we're all not going to be here a hundred years from now unless the Lord comes first. There is a moment in time when we exist. When we come to Christ, we are to feast our feast to Jesus during that moment in time. Again, let us ever do so. The Feast of Tabernacles is fulfilled by Christ for us. Just as the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, even though we have not seen the consummation of it yet, it is completed in his work, which allows this for us. Israel of old was to observe the feast as a statute forever throughout their generations. In Christ is the fulfillment of the shadow. Now we have the substance to keep for all of our lives. Verse 42 again said that they were to dwell in booths for seven days. We are to dwell in these temporary and yet beautiful bodies in Christ throughout our earthly lives. We are to live in anticipation of that great eighth day when we will receive our house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Speaking of our glorified, permanent bodies. It will be on the eighth day 
the day of new beginnings. The eighth day is the day of the rapture. Verse 43 then ended with the thought that all who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. I explained then that the term Ezrach, or native, comes from Zarach, or to rise, like the sun rising. The meaning is that it is one who rises out of Israel. For those who are grafted into Israel, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 11, we are included in this admonition. We have been circumcised, not of the flesh, but of the heart, because Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. We have met the requirements of Exodus chapter 12. We are as those who rise out of Israel. The last verse of the feast instructions, verse 43, was given as a reminder that we are to dwell in booths because when the Lord brought us out of Egypt, meaning spiritual bondage, he first delivered us to Sukkot. We were made new creatures in Christ at that moment, and so we are to live as new creatures in Christ until we were brought out to our final state of glorification. The verse ended with the words, I am the Lord your God. In proclaiming his name and position in conjunction with these feasts, we are to know that Christ Jesus, who fulfilled these feasts, is the Lord our God. Tabernacles and indeed all of the feasts of the Lord are ended with these words. In the waving of the palm branches and in the cries of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Israel was proclaiming what this feast anticipates, but so few of them followed through with it. And so God turned his eyes to the Gentiles until the time that Israel would again be grafted into the olive tree. And in the millennial reign of Christ, the one feast, the one feast in the millennial reign of Christ, which will be mandatory to be observed by all nations on this planet, is the Feast of Tabernacles. That is recorded in Zechariah chapter 14. It says there, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. It will be a thousand-year-long reminder that the Lord who came to tabernacle among us is there with them, dwelling in their midst. But that's not the end of the story. In the book of Revelation, the final chapter of this marvelous story is written. Young's literal translation of the Bible takes us to the glory which lies ahead for the redeemed of the Lord. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a great voice out of the heaven saying, Lo, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will tabernacle with them, and they shall be his peoples, and God himself shall be with them, their God. Concerning the Feast of Sukkot, or Tabernacles, in Christ, we proclaim, Feast Fulfilled. Concerning all of the feasts of the Lord named in Leviticus 23, in Christ, we proclaim, Feasts Fulfilled. As I said repeatedly through these Feast of the Lord sermons, they are fulfilled. They are done, and we are exhorted by Paul to not worry about observing them in a physical manner. In doing so, all that we can do is put up a wall between 
us and our Creator. Instead, we are to trust in Christ, we are to rest in Christ, and be thankful to God for the finished work of Christ. And in fact, we are, if living properly as Christians, living out these feasts as they were fully intended to be by observing them in our spiritual walk. We are in a temporary booth, we're covered with the glory of Christ, and we are awaiting our final eternal tabernacle. And if you've never taken the step of faith and received Jesus as your Savior, you are not a part of what God is doing in this world, nor will you share in heaven's riches when Christ comes for his people. I would ask you today to consider what you have heard and to do the wise thing by being reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ. Very simple. I read it earlier in the prophecy update. You have to believe that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day. That's what you have to believe. And when you believe it, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, an aravon. God doesn't make mistakes. He does not seal somebody with the Holy Spirit and say, I'm giving you my salvation and then take it back. I read a quote on Facebook yesterday. Somebody posted it. Some old preacher from a billion years ago. He said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. (laughs) absolutely right there's not a person here that would keep their salvation for 10 seconds because we're fallen people there is no loss of salvation in Jesus Christ you will be taken to the most glorious heavenly place that you could ever imagine and you will have a tabernacle which is not made with hands it is eternal in the heavens and it is guaranteed because of Christ please if you have not called on Jesus Christ do so today and it is done And then live for Christ and do what it says right there. I read it to you a couple times. Rejoice always. Always rejoice. This is what you get rewards for. Read your Bible. Rejoice. Share the message of Christ. Live holy lives, sanctified lives in anticipation of Christ's coming. And that is where your rewards will lie. Don't worry about your mistakes. God will take care of them. A little bit of loss here, a little bit of loss there will be overridden by the great rewards that you will get for living for God in Christ, okay? Yes. Closing verse today comes from Isaiah 33. It's verses 20 through 22. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there, the majestic Lord will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams in which no galley with oars will sail, nor majestic ships pass by. Verse 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Wonderful stuff. What a wonderful, wonderful journey we're on in the pages of Scripture. What an absolute wonderful journey. Next week is Leviticus 24. It's verses 1 through 9. Beautiful things to fill your head. It's entitled, The Holy Oil and the Holy Bread. That'll be our 43rd Leviticus sermon. And I have a point for you to remember today. As I try to remember to give you one each week, Christ put on a tabernacle. Okay? That was the Feast of Acclamation. Then he was killed. That was the Feast of Atonement. And now we are given a sukkah of righteousness. It's a covering of Christ, the guaranteed inheritance, all because of Jesus. Let us rejoice always. Thank you. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. 
He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I have a poem to you today called Tabernacles. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, these are the words he was then relaying. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, the 15th day of the seventh month, here now this word shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, so I submit, you shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord according to this word, On the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly according to the sacred writ, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, to be holy convocations, which you shall proclaim, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, each by its name, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day, besides the Sabbaths of the Lord. So hear the word, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides all your freewill offerings, which you give to the Lord. Also, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest. Please understand. And on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest, as to you, I now attest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day, the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. Choose as many as you please. And you shall before the Lord your God rejoice. For seven days you shall raise a festive voice. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month when the seventh month does appear. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. As to you, I tell all who are native Israelites shall in booths dwell that your generations may know that I made to dwell and boost the children of Israel when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God, and so to you these things I tell. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord, so to them these things he did tell. Lord God, you came and did tabernacle among us. You put on garments of flesh, and with us you did dwell. Praises to you for our Lord, the Lord Jesus. What an incredible story the Bible does tell. Now we too dwell in a temporary tent, living out our lives with an eternal guarantee. And when our lives are over, our last breath is spent, we shall be glorified forever throughout eternity. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Hallelujah to our atonement covering. Hallelujah to Christ our King. We applaud and to His Majesty we shall forever sing. Hallelujah and amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for a wonderful, even a spectacular close to the feasts of the Lord which you have given us. The marvel of what is tucked away there for us to see, and it pertains to us, we who are in Christ, who are imputed his righteousness, our sins are covered, we're granted the pledge of surety, which will never be taken away. It is a done deal. In your mind, we are already sitting in the heavenly places with you, but we sure want that day to come. Our bodies are falling apart. We're getting old. We're dying. Lord, we anticipate wonderful things ahead, and may that day be soon, but according to your will alone, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, wasn't that wonderful? I wish I had thought of that. If you could lose your salvation... You would. (laughs) Absolutely wonderful.
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>